the biggest thing I remember from the combat jump in March of 2003 was the the terrain when we landed. So we were dropped in the in a farmlands, which makes for a really soft jump, which is great for an airborne soldier. Um, but it was also it rained for a week before in northern Iraq in the farm field, so we jumped into knee-deep mud. Yeah, for this, I mean, the planning probably took, uh, I mean, it, for us, Max, you know, 15 minutes or something. All we did was we, we picked up a map and we looked, and, and I started on one end, and the Star Major started on another. I started at, at Kandahar, and he started at uh, Kabul, and we just kind of looked at the map and looked to see where we could kind of put in uh, observation positions or OPs. Welcome back to another episode of the MWI Podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. Today we've got a sort of special edition of the podcast, a joint production with the West Point Center for Oral History. This episode features four veterans of combat jumps. Colonel Liam Collins took part in a high-altitude, high-opening jump into Afghanistan in 2001. Major John Spencer and Sergeant First Class Carlos Navas participated in a jump into northern Iraq in 2003. And retired Lieutenant Colonel James Maggie Magellis jumped into Holland during Operation Market Garden in 1944. Together, these four gentlemen give an incredible understanding of just what it's like to jump out of an airplane onto the battlefield. They're interviewed by Major Brendan Griswold of the West Point Department of History. A couple of quick notes before we start. If you're enjoying the MWI podcast, we've also got some great new content at the MWI website at mwi.usma.edu, so I hope you check it out. Also, the Center for Oral History has some incredible interviews on their website, literally hundreds of them. If you're not familiar with them, their website is well worth visiting. They're at westpointcoh.org. And lastly, as always, the views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and don't represent the official position of West Point, the U.S. Army, or any agency of the U.S. government. All right, enjoy the episode. What I'd like to do is to ask these other gentlemen to share their most vivid ex memories and experience that they most remember from their combat jump with the group, and then we can discuss further. So, uh, Colonel Collins. Uh, yeah, so uh, I actually thought my first jump would be back when I was in the 82nd Airborne Division. I was in 1504, 1st Brigade of the 504th, as a uh, platoon leader, engineer platoon leader, and we were getting ready to jump into Haiti. So I actually thought that would be my first combat jump into there. Uh, uh, Chuck, uh, Chuck Jacoby was my battalion commander and, and John Abizade was the brigade commander at the time and so uh, we boarded the aircraft and we flew halfway to Haiti and then we turned around and, and came back and so as a young officer in the army we thought that was it, that was our shot at combat and coming from an airborne unit thought that would be the one chance to jump into combat so didn't really expect to get another chance until 2001 uh, at that point, I'd already been in Afghanistan once, and so it was in November of or, uh, November of 2001, and uh, at that uh, right after the day Kandahar, or not Kandahar, but the day Kabul fell, and then we looked, uh, the, the CG, the uh, commanding general asked us if, if we could jump in to uh, basically watch the road that was going between uh, Kandahar and Kabul and look for Taliban, and so we said, we looked at it, and, and we could do that mission and so we looked at how to get in and what was the various you know we could uh, well we couldn't really drive in that would take too long we we could take helicopters in but that would have some risk of, of dropping us off and kind of alerting people where we were at so when we looked at it really the only way that we could go in was uh, parachuting in and then 
based off of the elevation of the ground there and where we were coming from, it looked like um, halo or high altitude, low opening, or in our case, high altitude, high opening would be the best way to, to get into Afghanistan. So that's, that's ultimately what we did. So we had about 24 hours to plan for it and execute it. Yes, sir, I've read elsewhere that um, the planning process went pretty smoothly. Um, I was wondering if you could discuss, you know, how, how that came about. How were you so uh, quickly, within 24 hours, able to plan such a, uh, an operation? Yeah, for this, I mean, the planning probably took, uh, I mean, for us, Max, you know, 15 minutes or something. All we did was we, we picked up a map and we looked, and, and I started on one end, and the Sergeant Major started on another. I started at, at Kandahar, and he started at uh, Kabul, and we just kind of looked at the map and looked to see where we could kind of put in uh, observation positions or OPs to kind of watch the road and get enough, enough spread between the two positions so one could call in aircraft to, to, to drop bombs on targets while the other could, you know, one could locate it and then by the time the aircraft got in on target the other would pick up the target. And so we looked and there was basically only one place along that route where we could do that and, and so that took about 30 minutes and after that it was just uh, just a normal really for us training operation we had done before just figuring out what specific mission equipment we needed in terms of optics and and other uh, equipment to go in on target and so it was really just uh, loading the rucks and prepping after that. Yes sir. Major Spencer can you share your experiences? Sure so I I jumped into northern Iraq in March of 2003 as part of the invasion. Um, it's Operation Northern Delay and, it, and the real entire purpose was that the Fourth ID, who was part of the invasion, uh, couldn't get in. So Turkey said that Fourth ID couldn't land and, and come in from the north, which gave the 173rd Airborne basically another mission to drop into the north of Iraq to engage the Iraqi Northern Division, so they wouldn't move south into Baghdad as the Third ID moved moved up from the south. I was a platoon leader. I'd only been in my unit for two months. Um, so it was, to say it was surreal is a different conversation. Uh, we were we knew something was going on and we got notified and we moved to Air, Aviano Air Force Base uh, and started to, to rig. And as we drive up, there's 15 C-17s <coughs> at, on the airfield and I'd never seen anything like that. Mm -hmm. One, I'd never jumped out of a C-17, but the, the size is, is pretty amazing. But to see 15 of those lined up on an airfield was pretty impressive. Uh, and then we rigged out, so a thousand combat jumpers rigging mm -hmm. in the open, uh, sure. so in the open of the day, which, you know, I like the pictures so I can reflect back on the pictures because you always forget some things. Sure. Some of the things that stick out on me was uh, we never had combat loaded everything like that before. Mm -hmm. So we, we were actually given leadership cards. So based on your leadership position, you were given a card. So I was the platoon leader, so I was given a platoon leader card and it said, Go draw your ammo. So I went to our station and handed in my card, and I got a lot of things I didn't really want to carry. <laughs> so I got you know seven flares, yeah. you know this many grenades, this many a lot of stuff that just according to this card it was what I needed to go into. Um, and we rigged out some other things that are just that stick in my mind um, mm -hmm. is that we all had a, an ideal in our minds from the reading books of World War II or, or watching a movie on how, how it would look, how it would feel. And after we rigged on the first day, we were kind of rigged out and rigged everything, our, our rucksacks, and then had to stay overnight before they jumped. And they fed us a meal that <laughs> I've never had since that in my 24-year Army career. 
So they gave us literally T-bone steaks, lobster tail, ice cream, all you could eat. And the only thing that we could remember was the Band of Brothers scene where they, they get ice cream, and like, they never give us ice cream. And that, for some reason, that memory sticks in my mind really strongly of, of the combat operation and the preparation for it. We, we did not get ice cream. You didn't get ice cream? <laughs> we did. We, and it was all you could eat ice cream. Yeah. Um, it was all you could eat lobster, steak. Uh, but what I, I talk about too is that Haiti sure. remained in the military from the time of Haiti. So the, the idea that you would get the go, the green light to jump. I mean, everybody remembers Haiti that the 82nd Airborne rigged up, was hooked up, some planes hooked up, ready to go, and the doors were open. And canceled it. And it canceled it. Sure. So that was, always, that was in our mind as we were preparing for the jump. Like, is this really going to go? And every step you get closer and closer, you're like, this really feels like it's, it's going to happen. Um, and then you get, we got intel reports on you know, what was happening. That's almost a separate part of the story. I always like to tell the, the personal kind of story sure. rather than the operational context to it. Yeah. Uh, so we, we rig up, we actually rigged all of our parachutes on, but we didn't rig our, our rucksacks. So that was on the plane, mm -hmm. which these planes, the C-17, it's, it's a football field inside in there. And they actually did put vehicles and we, we heavy dropped vehicles. We load up, you know, 90 plus soldiers into each aircraft, and I was a platoon leader. Uh, so I was at, and I was number one jumper, which is, I was number, air, you know, chalk five, so aircraft five, left door number one jumper. I didn't want to be number one jumper. I actually wanted to give it to my RTO, even though I had my radio. I wanted to give my RTO because he was a young soldier. I, I actually was prior service, sergeant first class. Okay. I was jump master already, sure. and I wanted to give it to my or to my RTO because that's kind of normal. And the jump master wouldn't let me do that. Oh, wow. So, and he was actually one of my squad leaders. The jump master. Jump master was, uh, and I said I would. I, I want your know, private Lathier to, to to be the number one jumper. He's like, mm -hmm. can't do that, sir. <laughs> so we get on, we rig, and it's a five-hour flight, just about five-hour flight to Iraq. Yeah. Um, and at a certain point, we got to rig our rucksacks on, so we rig up our access. I was actually at the end of the chalk, so I have the radio for the aircraft. As a second lieutenant, of course I'd been in for a while, but that was, for me, uh, one, I couldn't sleep like everybody else was sleeping on a five-hour flight because I'm reporting in for the sure. aircraft. Sure. Uh, and then hear the air, airborne commander basically communicating to all the aircraft, getting them updates um, on whether we're going to go. So now, so now I kind of have a real-time play of, in my mind, Haiti. Like, mm -hmm. we don't know if it's going to go, we don't know the situation on the ground. So I was, I was that person actually with the headgear answering to the airborne commander as a second lieutenant, a little surreal. Uh, we get closer and, and the communication is it's on, it's off, so that's actually going on in the headset. Uh, plus, they were very adamant that we only had a short amount of drop zone, which everybody knew we only had a certain amount of drop zone. And we'd gotten weather reports about what, was on the, what the weather was on the ground. Sure. So we get the green light, you know, everybody stood up, we're going out. So some things that happened in a combat jump, I didn't, you know, as an old airborne soldier, you didn't know. So we found out from doing this jump that a jump master can stop a chalk anytime he wants and, and go out. Because a jump master is usually a leadership position. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to run out of green light and the leader not be the ground. Right. So the jump master knew that he could stop the chalk at any time and walk out. Uh, and some jump masters did that. Wow. Some jump masters did not, and 
actually there were squads that didn't get out of the combat jump because we only had a certain amount of green light. Ran out of drop zone. Ran out of drop zone, red light. Many people went on after red light because they're not going to miss their chance. (laughs) I'm not going to miss my chance to be on the ground. Absolutely. And I'll try to make, you know, I know we have a short amount of time. Uh, I'm number one jumper. I'm out. Everybody knows that if you've been, how, how loud an airplane is and when you hit, and you're out the airplane, how silent it is. Um, the biggest thing I remember from the combat jump in March of 2003 was the, the terrain when we landed. So we were dropped in the in a farmlands, which makes for a really soft jump, which is great for an airborne soldier. Um, but it was also, it had rained for a week before in northern Iraq into mm. the farm field. So we jumped into knee-deep mud, mm. which probably the heaviest rucksack we've ever tried to carry on a combat operation because now you have all that stuff that I didn't want and um, we actually had little other equipment than ammo mm-hmm. but it, it meant that everybody's ruck was 100 pounds or more mm-hmm. and they weighed us to, to get that basically statistic. So trying to move, so I was a, a platoon leader so I, we had an assembly area we had to move to so I had a 1600 meters to the assembly area okay. or 1800 to 1600 and trying to move across that farmland yeah. in mud with a 100 pound rucksack and you're supposed to scoop up a, a ranger buddy or, or a, an airborne. You're supposed mm-hmm. to scoop up another person. So you, you always move with somebody. And I, I actually scooped up one of my soldiers and moved. Wow. Um, and then he couldn't keep up. He couldn't move at one point. So mm-hmm. he couldn't make it to the assembly area. Wow. And I'll leave it there because I don't want to steal much time. But okay. I remembered the mud. Okay. Yeah. I'll just, I mean, the, the surface, ours was a completely different surface. I, I, I like to describe it as... Um, like in the, in the movie Armageddon, when Owen Wilson's character asks Billy Bob Thornton what the surface of the asteroid is going to be like, and he describes it in scientific terms, and Owen Wilson says, worst thing you could possibly imagine. That's all you had to say. Worst thing you could possibly imagine. So that's kind of what I equated our our drop zone to be. It was just very, I mean, it was in, you know, we had some mountainous terrain around it, but it was just very rocky, uh, ditches, ditches and rocks everywhere. So carrying your pack it I mean the ground was hard when you hit it anyway but then carrying your pack you weren't have to worry about mud but you were constantly with you know 200 pounds on your back you were just tripping and falling every every time so these unexpected challenges that exist on the drop zone exist even in combat right? oh yeah yeah so you yes. training yep I mean it's it usually in training you're gonna go train on the nice softer drop zones because sure. it's safer but in, in combat you take what you can get that's true um, Starburst class Navas you were the the Alpha team leader in third platoon, Bravo Company, 2503. So the sister battalion. That's right. Um, to Major Spencer. Can I didn't mention <coughs> first to 508. I'm sorry. Red Devils. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm over there. But can so you there, there was, sir. I think uh, my airborne career was over uh, when I left the 82nd. Uh, that was my first thought. I was part of the third battalion, 505 uh, Black Panthers back in the day. Uh, when I became a team leader, I was reassigned to Italy. So uh, I, I was helping studying up a company. A brand new uh, battalion uh, in the uh, 173rd Airborne. Uh, our first real-life mission was Kosovo. We were working in the border of Serbia, uh, and we were supposed to be there for about six months. Uh, they pulled us out uh, within 20-something days, so we, we thought something was going on. Uh, once we arrived to Italy, we went into Aviano Air Base uh, to, to have a training exercise which when I saw all 10 C-17s just park into the runway, I was like, hold up, is this training? Uh, <laughs> what is going on? So ongoing, uh, and, and coming from the 82nd, 
I remember my platoon sergeant telling me, hey, uh, once we receive all the vehicles with the ammunition, uh, who jumps the AT4 before? Uh, no, but you're supposed to have to be qualified to jump the AT4. So they called me. I was six foot tall at the time. I, I did have the training, so there we go. I received an AT4. Now I have to jump the AT4. One thing I remember was the uh, indeed the T-bone steak and the, the lobster. It wasn't the 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 bad the lobster. It was the good one, the good quality one. So yeah, we knew something was about to happen. Uh, great uh, things happen on the ground. <clears throat> I had over. Five grenades on my body, so this is, this is on, on, unreal. Uh, all my nine magazines and uh, everybody was ready. <clears throat> I remember I was a uh, shock three uh, jumper number seven. I remember Colonel Colonel o, uh, Owens was uh, the number one jumper, and yeah, I remember the uh, the mud. It was knee deep. Uh, luckily, I actually assembled real quick. Went to the assembly area, gathered my team, and uh, I have a uh, on. Uh, follow-on mission with my team, so I had the opportunity to go into Turkey. Uh, I had to take off everyone. So we took off our, our uniform, mm -hmm. civilian clothes, and we drove sure. some uh, Range Rovers with some, some catch on hand, and uh, wow. we brought some fuel trucks uh, within 24 hours. We made it there. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I remember, uh, the officer that was with, with us uh, in charge, he took a, a wrong turn, uh, and <laughs> we end up near in the outskirts of Mosul, so the eighth uh, is that Major armor. Spencer? <laughs> <laughs> no, eighth armor uh, division, uh, Saddam's uh, uh, wow. tank division. Were, were because there of the wrong turn. Correct. They were they were there just chilling, and uh, the only thing I uh, I did was uh, call up on the radio and tell everybody to wave, wave. Uh, I mean, look like like you you like the people you know you're like. Doing some good things in there, and everybody to look like you're normally supposed Correct. to. Correct. So everybody started waving back, and we're turning with 18 trucks. It's just a hassle. It took us about probably an hour to turn those vehicles back, sure. and we made it safely to Bashur. And yeah, that was crazy. Wow. Uh, those 72 hours uh, after the jump, being with the Peshmerga, and having all those troubles on the road, uh, mm -hmm. it, it was kind of it was good. I mean, wow. Crazy, but. What a great story. Um, well, we all know jumping out of any airplane is a harrowing experience and something that uh, makes everyone nervous, but uh, put combat in there and it makes it even more, uh, produces more anxiety. So I wanted to get each of your comments, and sir, can we begin with you? What was going through your mind um, before you jumped into Market Garden on the aircraft? What was going through your mind prior to the jump when you were on the airplane? Well, it didn't just what goes through your mind prior to the jump. When you're alerted that you're going to make a jump, you you know, uh, all of your senses seem to start functioning and mm -hmm. wondering what's going to happen because, first of all, <clears throat> Holland was the first daytime combat jump that, sure. that we ever made. Mm -hmm. And we were jumping into hostile countries occupied by the Germans. And they had shown their their force and strength at Normandy, mm -hmm. and they were still to be contended with. And we were going to jump in, jump into Holland in the daytime. Well, that raises a lot of questions. Uh, not not whether the jump will be okay, the the the, the actual uh, the actual activity 
of jumping and the process of jumping, but what would you run into? That was in our mind. We're in England. We have to cross the channel. We have to come in, 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 in we, we have to come in, in, in C-36, uh, in, 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 in C-6, uh, in jump planes, and we'd be easy targets. That was going through our mind. Uh, and we were wondering how we were going to cope with it. When the mission was first planned, uh, when they planned to invade, uh, we were alerted and we were taken out to the Air Force, out to the airport, and, uh, and checked in at the airport to wait for our planes and for our time to jump. Mm -hmm. And then it was postponed for a week. Mm. Uh, because of weather or other conditions, they decided that they wouldn't they wouldn't attempt it. So if they weren't going to attempt the landing, then there would be no purpose in paratroopers jumping ahead of them. So we sweated that out, and then we came back to the airport a week later, and we checked in in the army cots in a hangar, and uh, we spent uh, spent the night in there. Uh, preparatory to jumping in the morning. And so there was a lot of speculation going on as to why it had been canceled about the enemy strengths. You know, when you're in, the, you're in a combat element and you're not privileged to the, all of the messages sent from above and you, you're not part of the big picture, sure. you, you keep wondering, you know, how many Germans are over there and and, and, and what are we going to run against, and, and how well are they armed, and how well is this area protected, and how are we going to deal with that? Those are things running through your mind, uh, particularly if, if you're in a, in, a, in, a, in a leader position, or you're the jump master. I mean, you have to worry about that, and you have to worry about your men. So anyway, we came back to the airport, and we spent the night there, and I remember that morning, about five o'clock in the morning, mm -hmm. the following morning, we were going to be leaving uh, fairly early, and, and so we were up at five. I remember a, a fellow from Georgia, his name was Robert Blankenship, Bob Blankenship. He was a football player of Georgia, and he was understudy to uh, uh, the famous Georgian quarterback. Anyway, <laughs> And he was a close friend of mine. He was in I Company. Mm -hmm. And he got up in the morning and he started singing. Um, uh, he started singing this song and I never, never forgot it. He says, down, <clears throat> down in the valley, valley so deep, <clears throat> late in the evening, hear that, plane, hear that train beep. You know, and he starts singing this song. And he's singing this in the morning. <laughs> I, well, we woke up, we got dressed and got ready, and uh, then we're assigned to our planes. And uh, we checked in and we had full plane, I think. We had 16 in our stick. Okay. And it was the case, as you know, the leading officer, then I expect now, was the jump master. Mm -hmm. The reason for that was because of the series of jump commands. You jump, and I imagine the commands are the same. Stand up, hook up, you know, check your equipment, 
and so sound off for equipment checking and so on. Right. And then uh, the final, uh, before that, it was, are you ready? And whenever that song, whenever that came out, are you ready? And this is after the guys have stood up and checked their equipment and they were waiting to go to the drop zone. That's a, the sweating out period. You're standing. Sure. You're already nearing the channel. You're going to be coming into enemy territory. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you're concerned about that. Uh, and so uh, and, and so all that is on your mind. That's great. When we crossed the channel, we got across the channel, and we headed north from England and crossed the channel and crossed over the Walcheren Islands, which is part of Holland, mm -hmm. northern part. We crossed over there. The minute we crossed over and got in near the shore batteries, Germans opened fire on us with, with some anti-aircraft stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the planes in H Company, the 504, in my company, got shot down. And this is a strange story, and I'll tell it to you. Excuse me. In our parapacks that we would pack when we load the plane, when we put our our crew served weapons in and things that we dropped that we couldn't jump with and so on. We had other things, extra ammunition, and when you're going into enemy territory, you need other things that you can't be easily resupplied with and so on and, and so forth. And, and one of the things that we took with us was Composition C. How many are familiar with that, Composition C, this plastic explosive? Are you all familiar with that? Yep, I had it in my rock for, for Okay, Haiti. now you know, the shoe bombers that they got used Composition C on a plane. And he had a, he went in the he went in the men's room and he was able to work it into his shoe with some kind of a firing device. Well, we took composition C with us, mm -hmm. which we used to make what I call the gammon grenade. It was a British grenade. I bet you're familiar with it. Are you familiar with the gammon grenade? Yes, sir. That term. The gammon grenade was composition C, which came in sticks like peanut butter sticks, mm -hmm. and but it could be molded and worked up and, okay. and so on. Sure. And I remember first using it in Italy uh, when we were running, going through a town and, we're, and, uh, and the enemy had taken off and, and we were doing a little looting in some of the expensive homes, looting, you know, things we could put in our pocket. Not much more, but that there was a safe in somewhere and uh, I took one of this composition C, and I molded it in such a way, and I and I put the firing device from a hand grenade in there where you pull the pin. It was it had an explosive effect, sure. and uh, I remember using it there on that bank, and uh, the, my my platoon all stood back while I did it, and then when I pulled that pin in three seconds, we took off. It just blew everything the hell out of it. <laughs> it blew everything out of it. Anyway, oh, wow. we took. Composition C with us, and it came packed up like I said. It was all packed up, and we would use it for various things. It was an explosive, but mm -hmm. we all—I also know how to make a gammon grenade out of it. 
Well, the belly of the plane, this particular plane, had, had composition C in it. And composition C also would burn. Sure. Because guys would have it and they'd break off a little piece and break off a little piece and put a light to it. And you get a little blue frame and maybe heat a K-ration or heat something. Hot food. Hot so chef. we could use it. I don't know if you've ever used it for that purpose. Have you ever familiar with that? Yes, sir. Yeah, okay. <laughs> then you know what I'm talking about. In any event, this plane had composition C. And so when the Germans, when we first came into their area, across the channel, and they started firing at us, they started firing at us with small arms as well. Everybody on the ground, I mean, you know, we were coming in low. I mean, we were easy targets, rifle targets. And so they were firing away at us. And they were in the machine guns, the German machine guns, every fifth round was a, uh, was a, 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 a flare. Um, a, uh, Tracer. Tracer. Yeah, right. Every fifth round was a lighter round. And as they would come up and shooting at us, and, and, and then bullets are coming up, and the, the, the lit ones would hit the belly of the plane and they were burning and they set this composition C on fire. Wow. And it blew out the bottom of the plane. Mm -hmm. The guy's flying the plane and the bottom's beginning to fall out and all of a sudden paratroopers are dropping out mm -hmm. that were near there wow. because the bottom was burning. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a strange incident. As I say, it probably never happened to anybody else. But it did just on that occasion. And some of the guys up front, the jump master and others, were in Holland by that time. We were standing up even though we were a good ways to go. And you don't like to stand more than five minutes, you know, because that's the sweating out time. Uh, they were there. They all began to pour out any way to get out of that plane because it's starting to burn and smoke and so on. Sure. The pilot, the co-pilot and the, the crew chief, they stayed with the plane. And uh, the paratroopers got out, dropped off the bottom, got burned, and so on. But, but they got out, and they landed in a, in a particular area, uh, near, the, near a residential area, or there were homes around there. But the plane crashed, and the pilot and the, and the co-pilot uh, were, uh, were, were killed. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but, but the paratroopers were there, and, and, and so on. But the Germans quickly moved in on them, sure. and and took them and captured them, and some of these guys were burned and pretty bad and wow. and and so on. But that was our experience crossing the channel. Wow. We lost one of our planes in H Company, wow. so that was a good size of our force. Yes, sir. Then we start off and we head south to head towards the drop zone. Well, in our briefing, like in your briefings, you make it. A jump, you see the drop zone, you know what it looks like, and you're the jump master, uh, you're, you're going to give the command, let's go. And the other thing is, I, I may be repeating things that you know, but but I'll, I'll tell you what I recall, mostly I tell you that my memory is still fairly good, that the reason the senior guy was the jump master was because when you gave the command, let's go, if somebody decided, well, maybe this isn't my thing, he's obeying it, disobeying a direct order. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's subject to court martial. Is that still the case? Yes, sir. And so when the jump master says, let's go, let's go. Well, they, you never had to do that. Guys were so damn glad to get out of a plane anyway. It didn't make any difference to them. <laughs> yes, but I always remembered 
one down. I said, let's go, and you turn around and you went out, and they didn't follow. Hey, you know, where's this guy gonna go anyway? And so anyway, we're coming in, and after that plane got shot down, I gave my stick the command, stand up, hook up. And so they stood and hooked up. And we were, I don't know, maybe five, we were a good 10 minutes away or longer to get to the drop zone. We just gotten into Holland, 15, 20 minutes. We were a while, 20 minutes, maybe longer. But I know it was more than we normally, in the jump command would have said, stand up. I said, stand up and hook up. Well, the reason for that was if we ran into any problem, the guys were hooked up, there's a chance you could get out. But if you weren't hooked up, you didn't have much of a chance. Well, you'd, you know, you'd go whatever happened to the plane. So I give the order, stand up, hook up. And the guys stand up and hook up and they're there. And then as we got along, I, you know, check your equipment. Sound off for equipment check. Loud and clear. And the and the the, the the anchor guy that I call the anchor man from 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 bowling I guess was a, was the leading NCO and the leading officer if there was an officer was the jump master and the NCO was the last guy to keep moving so we're standing and I'm looking up looking at down below and we nearing the, the bridge area coming into what was the 101 area, uh, there were defenses along a number of those installations and they all fired at us because we were coming in low. And I stood in that plane <clears throat> and I stood in that door and I'd look out and I'd see those, and I'd see those, uh, the, German, the Germans firing at us. Sure. And I could see their, uh, and I could see their, 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 their bullets every fifth one, and they were coming at me from the ground, and the angle of deflection was so small, mm -hmm. one, one one hundredth of a thousand or something or other. Sure. And when you stood in there and you saw them bullets coming at you, the flares, and not the flares, the... Um, tracers. tracers. The what? Tracers. Yeah, the tracers, sorry. You see these tracers, every fifth one, you'd swear it was going to hit you right between the eyes. <laughs> You're standing in your door. You got your hands on the side, you know, waiting, waiting to get to the drop zone, and here comes these bullets at you. Mm -hmm. What the hell are you going to do? You can't do anything. You, you kind of pull back a little bit, but hell, you stand there, you get hit, you get hit, right? And I never forgot that, seeing them flares come up, and, or them the tracers come up at me, and I write this in my book. It looked like everyone was going to hit me directly. Well, we get within, uh, we get in pretty close to the drop area, and it was, uh, it, it was in between Nijmegen and, and, uh, and, and Grave, uh, our jump area, and there was, there were some Germans defending uh, those bridges there. They weren't large forces, but, but they had garrisons there. Sure. And they all started shooting at us, and they started coming at us pretty heavy. And just before we jump, and we're all hooked up, the sergeant called back and says, Lieutenant, he says, I've got two guys that have been hit. And they're already in the stick, hooked up. And you know how you come down the stick in the C-16. 
they're already hooked up. And I holler back at them, unhook them and kick them off to the side. Because if you didn't unhook them, the guys behind them couldn't go by them. They had to be unhooked before, before a guy could go with them once he was hooked on the static line. I said, uh, so I said, okay, unhook them, kick them off to the side. So he did unhook himself, went over, unhooked these guys, kicked them off to the side, and the guys closed up. So finally we got there, I was there, and I gave the command, let's go. And uh, first of all, before that, when I gave the command, are you ready? Are you ready? You get a screaming voice. A frightened screaming voice, God, yes, hell yeah, I'm glad to get out of this damn thing. <laughs> Sure, Are you ready? Yeah, and they just screamed out, yeah, yeah, <laughs> as loud as they could. And then I said, let's go. And we jump out, out we go. I make my jump. And when I make my jump, I get, I get fired on. And uh, I remember that I, had a, uh, that I had a backpack on, a mazette bag that I carried. We'd sing over our back over our shooting over our back. It was on our back. You maybe you used them. We call them mazette bags then. Okay. It was a bag. It was, you know, it was a little. Mm -hmm. Well, it was what we call a mazette bag. It was a little, little pack where you would put personal things in and other things that you couldn't get in your pockets and you put in that, in that mazette bag. And, and so uh, I, I had that and, and it had a couple of snap hooks on it and I had it hooked onto my under my parachute, sure. uh, on the hooks on the, on the parachute, mm -hmm. and it was on my back, and I had my helmet on. And also, an interesting thing was, when I jumped in Holland, I jumped with two weapons. A Thompson submachine gun, which was my weapon of choice as a combat leader, because most all of my fighting was in close. I mean, you know, I wasn't a sniper or anything of that sort, but but in leading men, uh, a Thompson submachine gun was a pretty damn good weapon. Because if you look at it, it the hitting power of it was such that you hit a guy, you're going to stop him, and that's why why the, the 45 pistol came into effect in the Philippines earlier because the morals that we were fighting with. They did them with a 30 and they kept coming at you. Sure, 45 more stopping power. So yeah. they went to 45s. Mm -hmm. And out of that came the top of the submachine gun. So I had that. I had that slung on one shoulder. Over the other shoulder, I had an 03 sniper's weapon, a rifle, with a scope. Now, why would I need that? I didn't know why I'd need it. We're jumping in Holland. I know it's flat territory. I know there may be big distances. But I, but I didn't want to be in a foxhole. And, in some kind of a gun battle with a guy 500 yards away with me and I'm fighting him with my, fighting him with a thumb yep. submachine gun. So I had that. I had that on one shoulder, I had that on the other shoulder. On every hook, I had hand grenades handy. And in my pockets, I had, I had all weapons. I was loaded down with weapons. It was incredible to see. Mm -hmm. I was loaded, I had uh, loaded. My musette bag that I had in my, I had bought some goodies in London that I packed in there. I had I had my maps in there. We had silk maps that they gave us for the jump. We had silk maps. 
had that in there. I had my field glasses in there. I had all this stuff in there, but it was loaded down on my back. Yes, sir. And uh, I said, let's go. And we jump out the plane, and I jump out, and the opening shock was the worst I ever had. Is all this equipment I'm carrying. And the mazette bag, the loops break off, and off it went. And I never saw it again. All this good stuff that I'd saved them was gone. Wow. Was gone. And wow. wow. in any event, we get on the ground and we lay, and we lay there, and uh, you feel naked. You're on the ground, you're in enemy territory, they've been shooting at you, you know where in the hell they are, you know. You're going by your briefings and what little you knew, but here you were and you're on the ground. And boy, you get out of that, you get out of that, uh, out of that parachute as quickly as you can, and get a weapon, get a weapon in your hand. At least you can defend yourself. You're not on the ground trying to get out of a parachute. Great, sir. Well, I appreciate you, you sharing that, sir. Do you want to talk about your experience in the aircraft? Yeah, I mean, so. The first time going into Haiti, I mean, I think it was kind of a mix of, I mean, luckily we knew the threat wasn't anti-aircraft guns and, and people probably likely sh shooting at us in mass numbers coming in. So maybe when it got close, you would get fear or something, but there really wasn't any fear. It was really more just anticipation or really still dis disbelief, like, is this going to happen? Uh, and what I do remember is getting on the aircraft and seeing somebody that I didn't recognize and they had this giant black medical ruck. And I was, so I... You know, I was like, what is your job in the, in the 82nd? And he said, I'm the division anesthesiologist. And so I was like, yes. You know, I just said, stay by me when you hit the ground and you'll be fine. <laughs> um, but so the second time around, and so when we jumped into Afghanistan, it was kind of the same thing. We're like, okay, you don't want to have this thing turned around. And really, same thing. I mean, just trying to think about what you have to do on the ground. So really, no, no really chance to, for fear or anything else. Really, what was going through my mind was just don't screw this up. Mm -hmm. All I could think of is, okay, I'm the only officer on this. Uh, I just finished the military free fall school, so unlike typically in an airborne unit where you are going to be one of the leaders, it's a little different in a special operations uh, unit. Uh, so I finished the military free fall school two months prior, maybe three months. So everybody else had, you know, minimum of 100 jumps. Some of my guys had thousands of, of you know, military free fall uh, jumps, and I had 40. So all I could think of was don't screw this up. Don't be the guy that's, you know, writes the book later about or whatever and, and so that was what was going through my mind the whole time so as soon as we got out or and then as we're flying the other part was like hey we, we can't have this thing turned off so part way as we're as we're coming in we get reports that there's like goats on the on the drop zone so i talked to my the jump master uh who went by we called him taz and we were like what do you think we're like we're there's goats down there we're just going to avoid them and the last, all we could think of, like, if, if we do another pass, we might not get a second shot at this. It might be one shot only. We're, we're going no matter what's down there. Uh, so we did that and, you know, got under canopy, and I opened probably around uh, 13 or 14,000 feet. So as soon as I got under and got in there, put my night vision goggles on and looked down, and luckily I saw the guy at the base that I was going to be landing on. So he was still going towards the ground, and... All I could think of was, again, don't screw this thing up. So I just kept looping and, you know, spinning circles around him, kind of getting down, and, and I it, I just about hit him. I probably cleared him by about two feet over his head, and he was our combat controller. And, he, and when I came over, he's like, what the? And I, I landed, like, right next to him, and, and then we just waited for the rest to go. But for me, it was really more of just second time, just don't be the guy that screws this up, or, or I will wreck it for all officers forever. 
That's true. <laughs> Can you talk about how you overcame that relative inexperience, right? With your uh, your team, your, your fellow team members had hundreds of jumps. Yeah, I mean, for that, it was really, it just shows, right, the schooling, just like, you know, with five jumps in the airborne school, their yeah. sixth jump might be into combat. The schools work. Okay. And so for us, it was the same thing. The schools, I had done 30 or something before that. And then when I took command, um, Prior to 9-11, we didn't know anything was going to happen, but within the first month there, we did you know some jump training that uh, basically rehearsed a similar mission profile that we were ultimately jumping there. Now, some unknown things. You don't know what the weather is going to be like on the ground because sure. uh, it's so far away. It's not like we had weather stations in Afghanistan to report to us. Sure. Yes, um, but it was really just through you know good training that really allowed us to get there. And so it wasn't so much fear of that, but just didn't want to be that guy that landed <laughs> somewhere totally apart. Yes, sir. Major Spencer, uh, actions in the aircraft. I know you talked a little bit about what was going on. Were you receiving intelligence updates? I mean, yeah, so we disseminating were, that? It was really weather updates, which were the most concerning. Um, okay. And some of it was just reporting in, but it was communications from the, both the, the pilots to the airborne commander. So I, I was overhearing all of that. But you know, it, it, when you're in the aircraft, we knew that the, the enemy threat was supposed to be low. It was a an airborne reinforcement in the north. They were linking up with Kurdish forces on the ground, so we knew that going into it. It didn't matter in your mind, you know, just the, the unknown of what you were jumping into. Uh, but so the fact that I had these headphones, it, it, it helped and it kept my mind busy. Mm -hmm. But of course, I'm going through how not to mess this up as a leader, only two months in as a PL, um, and how not to mess it up as an individual on the ground. So I'm just, I go through in my mind for the entire time that I'm not talking on the radio, just over and over what I'm going to do when I hit the ground, how I'm going to orient myself to the direction of travel and then find somebody and move out. So I, I'm going through those steps over and over and over in my head. Um, and just like everybody else, once we get the command that, once to the headphones that this is actually happening, I um, still didn't believe it. So hook up, you stand up, you hook up, doors open. Still don't, not quite sure. And we had gotten the very specific commands that if the red light comes on, do not go. Because there was a threat of uh, aircraft missile. Um, so that, that was a thought that the missile lock on of an aircraft. So that we knew that the aircraft was going to come down onto the, the drop zone. And then as soon as the red light hit, they were going to hit the afterburners and really come up and out. So they gave us very specific commands of do not go on red because the burners will, will melt your chute and you'll, you're, you're going to be free-falling in. Uh, I was number one jumper, I didn't have to worry about them. Wow. That was, you know, they were reiterating that um, sure. across the Hook up, I'm the number one jumper. I, I look out and it's just, there's blackness. There is no lights, there's nothing. It's just, I was jumping into blackness. Um, and again, you, like you said, you don't want to go around. Not that, that was an option. That, so by the time you hook up, the only thing in your mind is, let me out of here. Get me out of here. Sure. Just because the weight on your back, the 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 smells, the sounds. Just let me out of this plane. Mm -hmm. So that kind of helps you think about things. Like all you want is to get out. And once you get out, then all my mind is going through is. Just, I, I I used to say I, I love jumping. I hate landing. <laughs> because a, a you know a military parachute is not meant to get you a nice soft landing. Uh, it's meant to get you to the ground quickly and slam you into the ground. Mm -hmm. That, that's where the free fall parachute's a little that's right. more forgiving. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so I, I hit the ground, and then again I'm orienting myself and just training. So I had had a lot. Many, I had over 35 jumps. Uh, I was already jump master, 
the training kicks in. And, okay, I, I want to get my weapon. I'm in knee-deep mud at this point. I, all that's going through your mind. I'm trying to find another aircraft to orient me on the ground so I know which way to start walking. I get all my stuff. I get all my stuff. I get my stuff on. This is also the first time that I was you know, not in a training jump. So the command is to make sure you take your ruck, your parachute and you know, put it in your kit bag and leave it. Which is, you know, if you're training, you, that's not going to happen. So I'm going to leave my parachute. There were many soldiers who just cut their chutes off. So, but you know, also in training, you know that somebody's going to come around the next morning and collect those up for another jump, potentially. But there were many people that just cut their stuff off. Mm -hmm. Because they want to get in the fight. Yep. As soon as possible. Yep. 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 Sure. Because it takes time to like you know really stuff in. Mm -hmm. We also knew that I knew from Ranger Regiment the you know, birds are going to come in, so that's the other reason why you collect your stuff up and you put it in the kit bag. So it's not. A so there's not a bird and it gets sucked in. All that's going through. I get my stuff on. I get my radio up and, and functioning. I I orient myself. I find somebody to take with me, which is Private Billy Bunton, uh, and drag him with me. And at one, so this ends my story, but. At one point, he, he says, sir, you're going the wrong way. And I had my nods at this point, which is really struggle to move through that and keep your stuff not muddy. Sure. Uh, and he says, sir, you're going the wrong way. Mm. And, and I look around, there's nobody around me. He goes, there's nobody around. You're going the wrong way. And it really, for me as a leader, it all came crashing down like I had failed. So not as only as a soldier, but this is also the first time as a platoon leader to, to prove myself as a leader. You're going the wrong way. And I swore that I was going the right way. I'd oriented myself to the aircraft. I knew how far I had gone. Um, so I changed. I, sh I changed my direction. I actually, I actually was going the right way. Um, it's just that the ground was so hard to move. Nobody else could move, and the momentum of where people were supposed to be at the time, they weren't moving in that direction. So I just oriented myself to a chem light, because that's what we do, you know, IR chem light, and move to a similar area. A similar area. So at least I could say, okay. Get your bearings. I get my bearings. This is who I am. Bill Private Bunning couldn't move anymore. Sure. So at this point, I was trying to motivate him, like, you have to move. There's no option. And he, he, he ended up stopped moving, and I said, and he stopped answering me, too. Yeah. So he, stopped, he disobeyed orders and just stopped answering me. So I said, I'm moving to that chem light, which at this point was 400 meters. He could see it. And like, I'm moving to this chem light. And I, I, you had to move out. I moved out. And I left him there. And come to find out, that was that chem light was my unit. And, and they decided to put the similar area some, somewhere different <laughs> just because they, nobody could move. Uh, so they threw up a chem, the first time I decided to throw up a chem light in the wrong, not the wrong place, in a different place. Mm -hmm. So it actually made leaning up my unit. Did it make assembly of your unit slower, I'm guessing, obviously? Yeah. yeah. With the train, different yeah. already, new so location for the assembly area. Was, so there were people who stopped at the hardball. You're not supposed to walk on the airfield. There's people that stopped right off of there and formed, made an assembly area because they had a radio. Like, assembly area is now here. Like, no, no, it, it's, sure. that's, you, you go with your, the plan, the plan. Um, so I actually, as a senior guy on the ground, told that element that had stopped to move to this location mm. and started to form. Because we know, we actually never got to what Sarnavas did, which is an, a movement enough people to move to, you have a minimum force, so you know when you get to assembly, if you have a squad and a gun team, mm -hmm. you move out to your, your mission. Um, we never got to that point, and when we did, then I was told to stay put, because then somebody came in. Uh, I mean, it's just a, the chaos of it, uh, and we weren't under direct fires, so. Mm -hmm.
How about your, your, your thoughts about In the Air? Uh, I believe the uh, actions on the aircraft were flawless at the time. Uh, we conducted a, a partial rig uh, before we took off. So I was carrying about 100 pounds of equipment at the time. Pretty much everyone were carrying that amount. Uh, threat, uh, we knew, was uh, probably an anti-aircraft at the time. So really what happened in my mind was, yeah, of course I was nervous a little bit. Not until I saw the leadership pulling cigars. That blew my mind. First time I saw that, uh, I, I said, we're jumping. We are jumping. And uh, the colonel on the ground was a we are. So people were screaming, pull, pull that cigar out, you know, and, and they were, no, they're, we're jumping in combat. We're, okay, Roger, I was like uh, static, like, wow, this is happening right now. Anyway, uh, we hook up, we were ready. Uh, and what happened was the, uh, the aircraft went down climbed like uh, this is the first time it happened in my life we were climbing really really steep down uh, at a high rate of speed uh, once the aircraft stabilized we jump it was seventh, seventh jumper uh, dark yeah uh, once I hit the ground I start uh, getting into L gaps a little group of paratroopers mm -hmm. uh, so I start picking up the uh, uh, the hurt uh, I think we have like three or four uh, busted ankles and whatnot uh, People that they were like, uh, hey, leave me here. No, hell no, you're not going to be staying here. You're coming with us, and I don't care what you got. You're moving. You're walking. Uh, and I move them to the actual uh, airfield, so we make it. Uh, and uh, I know uh, Coral, uh, the, the airborne commander, was on the ground already, just like uh, receiving all those paratroopers in there. So I had the opportunity to actually move into my assembly area uh, directly east from the uh, from the uh, uh, airfield, uh, and I made it relatively quickly there. Yeah, now that the airborne crossload often makes units uh, fly apart, was mm -hmm. your team with you on the aircraft? Correct. I, uh, as a matter of fact, my team was indeed with me. Uh, so what were you doing on the aircraft to, to prepare then? I mean, were you doing anything? Yes, uh, we. Uh, I was actually uh, basically verifying the, uh, the 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 map, rechecking the map where. Sure. We were the assembly area, uh, our mission. So uh, they were basically telling me the warning order back to me, so ensuring that they knew, back briefing me, sure. and all that. That's we great. were doing that constantly, so we got away from all the things happening at the at the time. Mm -hmm. So uh, I wanted to ensure that my team were actually indeed in ready in the event that something happened. That's great, um, sir. I know we talked about unexpected challenges on the on the drop zone. Uh, I believe you came across some wildlife. Um, I wonder if you could tell that story. Yeah, I mean, uh, first, I mean, go back to the, the, the aircraft. I wish I would have had a C-17 because we had a C-130 and, and it was, nice. it was, it was nice. cramped. And so we were rigging everything up there. And we, I mean, there was a guy on the ramp when we're 30 seconds out still hooking on his equipment before he went out. So I, I wish we would have had something so nice. But no, no ice cream, no, no <laughs> lobster, no steak, no nice new aircraft. Um, but yeah, so we got when we got there. I mean, again, we a little slower to assemble than we than we had planned uh, on on getting assembled there. Um, j just like I mean, things always happen. And so one of the one of the elements didn't get as far up there. Basically, going to get to the top of the uh, of the mountain or the the peak that was there, and they didn't get all the way up. Uh, so they, they they got as far as they could before daylight struck, and then they just basically put up their camouflage netting. Uh, which was phenomenal camouflage netting. The only problem that we really didn't anticipate or really think about, I guess, um, was that there is basically no vegetation in Afghanistan. Sure. So, uh, I mean, 
if there's a friggin' animal anywhere near, I mean, like miles away, and they see movement, that is food. And so there were some goats probably like four miles away, and they saw a little bit of movement, and they went straight for uh, my team's position. Uh, and it was such good camouflage netting. I mean, the goats were trying to eat their satcom antenna, and the goat herders are probably four feet from them looking at them before they actually could figure out that that was actually people wow. there. Uh, and so, you know, we had to, you know, of course, we were like, they're like, what do you do? I'm like, well, you got to let, you know, we're going to let the person go. You know, I had confidence in the weapon systems and what we had. Uh, we'd be, we, told, we were told we'd have CAS or close air support, you know, aircraft up in the air to, to drop bombs. They'd be stacked up for days if we needed it. And so I was pretty confident just based off of the, of the threat that we could hold off any enemy that we had until nightfall with our, with our weapon systems and, and, and given the terrain and we had the high ground and, until nightfall where we could be exfilled. So they basically just waved, the, you know, the goat herder and the goats away, and they're walking away and watching them the whole time, and they get about three miles away, and they get towards the road, and then this vehicle goes on a road and stops by them, and we just see the goat herder just, like, pointing, like, right at wow. these guys' position. We're just like, oh. So we call and get this, this cast that was going to be stacked up for days. It took about four hours before any even got to us. So luckily we didn't need it or anything. I mean, no one ever uh, came and bothered us at the position. But it, it caused them, we, you know, they had to basically move during daylight and try to find a, to get to a better position and, and to move a little bit away. But, yeah, I mean, it just showed no matter how rugged or anywhere. And other experiences we've had when I've sent teams into other locations, I mean, there is... There is life everywhere, no matter how remote you think it's going to be. There, there's stuff, and, and we knew that going in. We anticipated. We didn't, you know, we had read the books from the first Gulf War about teams getting compromised in, sure. in, in the Gulf yeah. War, and we knew that was a possibility. It wasn't like something, hey, we hope this doesn't happen. We anticipated it, and it was, you know, we assessed the risk and, and knew how long we'd kind of hold off, and... And so it was planned that this might happen, so we thought about it in advance. So when the situation came, it wasn't a complete unexpected thing, but we weren't going to, you know, we weren't going to... plan was not to write books about being a lone survivor or escaping on foot afterwards and write a movie about it later. It's just do the operation, be successful, and no one will ever know about it. And right. So despite, you know, them stumbling on them, we were able to continue on and, and remain for the remainder of our, our time on the ground. So was there any, do you think there was any disagreement with that decision to, to let the go? I know you talked about it before. Yeah, I don't uh, think so because we had, I mean, even though, like I said, we only had about 24 hours really to get ready and most of it was spent packing, but that was the, the one thing that came up the most is what are we going to do in this situation? And, 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 you know, different thoughts go through the, your mind, but, I mean, part of it is they're not, you know, they're not a combatant. And, sure. and second of all, even if we held them there just while we were doing our thing, somebody's going to come looking for them and it's not going to be hard to figure out where they are because they just, you know, they drive around in a vehicle and they just look around and they're like, oh, there's the goats. They're probably up there. So we just figured the best thing to do would, would be to let them go rather than having a big big pack of goats around us. Mm -hmm. Well, gentlemen, on behalf of the West Point Center for Military History and the Modern War Institute, I'd like to thank you for taking the time to share your experiences today. Recording your thoughts and memories for the historical record will prove valuable in understanding past airborne operations and preparing future paratroopers to conduct them in the future. Thank you again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the MWI podcast. Again, a special thank you to the West Point Center for Oral History. If you've got an interest in modern war, follow MWI on Twitter. We're at War Institute. Or search for Modern War Institute on Facebook and follow us. It's how we stay connected and let followers know about all of our new content, videos of some great speakers, new podcast episodes, and more. Thanks again.